042 X-Files Retrospective Podcast. I'm your host, Blaine Dowler. This week we discuss Season 1, Episode 13, Beyond the Sea. Now, the original air date for this episode was January 7th, 1994. So this is the one that they aired first after the Christmas break. It had an IMDb score of 8.6, making it one of the stronger episodes both of the season and of the series. It's actually tied for the third highest IMDb score, behind Ice and the Erlenmeyer Flask, and tied with Squeeze. There are a few other notable points to this episode. Once again, the writing team of Morgan and Wong was the team that brought this episode together, and it was directed by David Nutter, who also directed Ice, which is the second highest rated episode of the season, according to the IMDb. I spoke at length about David Nutter beforehand, and a lot of what pulls us together is that it's starting to break the formula. As you mentioned before, the X-Files up to this point is essentially a police procedural with horror and supernatural elements, and beyond the sea, it starts to break that mold. For example, the format we've seen so far is a teaser before the credits setting up what's going on with no interaction from Mulder and Scully. Mulder and Scully show up after the teaser as the case gets going, and it's often Mulder briefing Scully on what's going on. This is different. This episode, the teaser, is all about Scully having a family dinner after Christmas, and the dialogue here is incredibly efficient. We've never seen Scully's parents before, and yet we know almost immediately that Don S. Davis is playing her father. The opening shot is on a Christmas tree. Don S. Davis is looking at it saying, are you really going to leave this up all year? And it cuts to Scully's answer. Just the nature of the question, even her response saying that, yeah, she's making it for lost time because he always made them take down the tree the day after Christmas, even before she speaks, just the way he phrased the question, we know he's her father. Now, Don S. Davis is one of three prominent guest stars in this episode. A lot of viewers will know him from his later role in Stargate SG-1 as General George Hammond. He's also played in The Dead Zone, in Andromeda, in the relaunch of The Twilight Zone, in Con Air. He's had a number of roles prior to The X-Files. He had roles in Columbo, in Twin Peaks, 21 Jump Street, and he was actually the stand-in for Dana Eklar on MacGyver. So when they were doing the shots and prepping things and Dana Eklar wasn't there, but the film crew were setting up the shots, he'd be the one who'd stand where Dana Eklar had to stand so they could make sure everything got set up, and he ended up getting a couple of guest spots in MacGyver as well. The next notable guest star is Sheila Larkin, who's got a long history. If we look her up on the IMDb, her credits go back to Bonanza in 1967, and she's got a number of especially TV guest roles running all the way through. Uh, genre fans might recognize her from The Incredible Hulk. She's on a lot of medical dramas, Trapper John, Quincy, she was in Simon & Simon, Small Wonder, Doogie Howser. After this, she'd go on to have guest roles in the new Outer Limits, but she's possibly best known for playing Margaret Scully as Dana's mother starting in this episode. Now, in real life, she's married to R.W. Goodwin, or Bob Goodwin, who is executive producer and tended to direct a lot of the season premieres and season finales. In any event, this teaser basically wraps up the family dinner. We could tell Scully's dad has something he wants to say to her, but he can't say it. And a lot of that is played with some nonverbal communication between her parents. They leave, Scully wakes up in the middle of the night with an infomercial on, and she sees her father sitting in one of her chairs, and his lips are moving, but we don't hear anything. The phone rings, Scully turns away, turns back, and her father's not there anymore. She answers the phone, and it's her mother on the other end. Her father passed away from a coronary about an hour ago. So that's the end of the teaser. And that's a lot of the setup for this episode. When Morgan and Wong wrote it, they wrote it based on some of the negative feedback they're getting about the lack of development for Scully, and how Mulder's character was kind of starting to take over the show. As you mentioned before, the X-Files were a passion for him, and a lot of the time, Scully was more of a spectator, who was in it more out of respect for her partner than anything else. And Morgan Wong didn't like that. They wanted to give her a more prominent role, and that's what a lot of this episode is about, is putting 
with Scully in the forefront, giving her a lot to work with. And this is truly the first Scully-centric episode. After the break, we come back, and again, a lot of efficient dialogue. She ribs Mulder about his porn addiction, which is something that was set up in a previous episode. There's some banter in there, but there's a lot of caring. It's one of the few times when Mulder actually calls her Dana instead of Scully, asking her how she's doing after the loss of her father. And she even reacts to that, just repeating Dana in a low voice. So she knows, okay, he's trying, but it feels like he's going too far and it doesn't sit properly. So after this, Muller introduces her to a kidnapping case where a couple of kids have been missing. It seems to be a serial event. It happened almost identically about a year before. So they're going to rally North Carolina. Now in this case, Muller's been involved and the X-Files got called in on a typical kidnapping, which is not really their purview, because there's a serial killer named Luther Lee Boggs who's been in prison, who's claiming that his first trip to the gas chamber, where he almost died but received a last-minute stay of execution, opened his eyes to another world, and now he can channel spirits, and he claims he can provide information that will help them solve this case, but he will only talk to Mulder. Mulder's profile helped put him in prison. Boggs has read the profile, and he feels Mulder's the only one who truly understands him. And this is the major piece of casting in this episode. Luther Lee Boggs is played by Brad Dourif. I'm hoping I'm pronouncing that correctly. I've only ever seen it in print. Dourif's first prominent role was as Billy Bibbidi when Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. And it's one of the rare cases where a person won the Oscar for a debut role. He was just fantastic in that. He's done a lot of roles since then. He was Peter DeVries in Dune. He's had a few guest shots, and he seems to specialize in characters that you really want to freak out by. He was the voice of Chucky in the Chucky movies. He's been known more recently for work on Star Trek Voyager, for a role in Alien Resurrection, and his most prominent role following One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest is probably his work as Grima Wormtum in the Lord of the Rings trilogy. Certainly not his last work. When you get him, you know you're going to get good work. Now, he was already established when the X-Files came in, and their budget was a little bit strapped. They barely managed to get him for the part. He needed a salary of $15,000 for his role in this, and Chris Carter feels that pretty much the only reason he was able to get that money is because when he called the Fox executive who had the final say in that decision, he actually interrupted his Thanksgiving dinner, and he believes he got the okay to go ahead and get the money for Brad Dourif, simply because the guy wanted to get back to the table and his family on the holiday. And Carter is not at all convinced he could have gotten Dourif without it. Whatever way, maybe that's the truth, maybe not. Either way, Brad Dourif was perfect in this episode. The first time we see him, he's strapped in a chair, and he's shifting voices and shifting body language, and really playing it up as though he's being possessed by different people. And Mulder's and they're claiming, I want to believe you. Although we've seen already, this case is a bit of a reversal from the normal case. Mulder believes in psychic phenomenon. He doesn't believe in Luther Lee Boggs as a channel for psychic phenomenon. He believes Luther Lee Boggs was working with someone on the outside to orchestrate the kidnappings, and that his role in this is just a game to try and get a stay of execution. So Mulder pulls him to a test. He's saying, I want to believe. I want to get some information about these. Pulls out an evidence bag and hands Boggs a piece of fabric. And Boggs starts rubbing it and giving details about the crimes and where they could be found and where they are. And he's making a big show as he's rubbing the fabric and shaking it. And when he's done, Mulder takes the fabric back and just has this quiet little moment where he's whispering to Boggs, I tore this off my New York Knicks t-shirt. It has nothing to do with the crime. So basically, he caught Boggs, he knows he's full of it, and that's it. They're ready to leave. Mulder heads out, leaving Scully behind, and when Scully's the only one there, Boggs starts singing the music that played both at 
her parents' wedding, and at her father's funeral. And it starts to get through to her. She turns around and sees another image of her father where Boggs was. So this is another big reversal in this episode. This is the first step towards Scully being the believer and Mulder being the skeptic. What we see through a lot of it is a very high-tension episode. Not just because Mulder and Scully are at odds, but because Scully's at odds with herself, and she's trying to cope with the rational side, and her refusal to believe in extreme possibilities compared to the information that Box is feeding her and the things he seems to know. Even when she leaves being disturbed by this, on the way home, she spots all the landmarks that Box has seen, heads into a condemned area, and she finds evidence of a charm bracelet that was owned by the female kidnapping victim. Brings the police there, but when she's talking to Mulder later, she admits she lied about how she found it. She wasn't tracking the suspicious activity. She saw what Boggs described. And Mulder gets upset by this, firstly because he believes Boggs is orchestrating this and Scully put herself at risk, and this guy would have been laying a trap for her. And second, because she felt the need to lie in her report. So he takes it almost as an insult, which is understandable that it's, oh, it's okay for Mulder to put these things in his report. But Scully didn't want to open up to the possibilities and put that down as a matter of record. Takes it as a bit of a slight, which is understandable. Partly because Scully hasn't mentioned the visions of her father to him yet. So he doesn't completely understand what's going on and why she suddenly believes now and not before in spite of the other evidence that he knows she's seen. As we keep going, we keep getting evidence on both sides of the case. On the one hand, Boggs will come up with information that seems to be private. On the other hand, there's evidence pointing more and more to the fact that he's a piece of this. Even when he sends him to the next location, he warns Mulder to stay away from the White Cross, claiming that the spirits inside him that he's channeling see him down and bleeding next to it. And when Mulder passes a piece of a warehouse at the waterfront that is shaped like a white cross, the kidnapper shoots him, and he's down with a gunshot wound, which takes him off the table for the rest of the adventure. He's got a couple of scenes, but they're all done with him in a hospital bed, and Scully reporting in while she's doing the rest of the investigation. We keep going, and a big piece of what happens with this, now that they've recovered one of the kidnapping victims, although the kidnapper got away with the other one, they identify the kidnapper with the help of his victim. And he is someone that they strongly suspect to have been working with Luther Lee Boggs on his last five killings. They just couldn't prove it in court, which is why he's still on the loose. So now Scully feels she's been played the whole time by Boggs, and she is pissed. This is one of her best speeches. She just goes charging into the prison. She's determined, and she walks in on him, and the first thing she says is, you set us up. You're in on this with Lucas Henry. This was a trap for Mulder because he helped put you away. Well, I came here to tell you that if he dies because of what you've done four days from now, no one will be able to stop me from being the one who will throw the switch and gas out of his life for good, you son of a bitch. And she turns and storms out. Before the guard can open it, he starts to give her a little more information. And again, this is Red Dwarf Shining. He starts by calling her Starbuck, which is the pet name that her father had for her. Just like she called him Ahab. And after he says Starbuck, he grabs himself. And Dorif is actually able to get himself pumped up and jazzed enough. His face turns completely red as he's saying, no, no, nobody talks till he gets a deal. He doesn't want to go back to that gas chamber. He wants his sentence remanded to life in prison instead of the death penalty. And he says, whether you believe me or not, whether he's orchestrating it or whether he's channeling, no information is getting out till he gets his deal. And just the physical change Dwarf can work up in himself that we see slowly fade as he's delivering the rest of his speech. It's very impressive. And this, it's not makeup. You can see it build and you can see it fade while he's on the screen. They have another very good exchange as he starts to get under her skin again. Scully does try to get him that deal. And 
she does it more for the sake of the victims. But there's also the question, and she really does seem to believe him. But he is able to point her to where Lucas Henry has the victims, and he gives her a warning about an unsafe area in that facility. So Scully hesitates, and Lucas Henry doesn't. In the final chase down, he goes through a broken bridge and falls to his death. So they've recovered the victims, and Scully now believes Boggs that if he was working with Henry, he'd have warned Henry about that bridge. As the viewer, that's still an open question. I mean, Mulder has said he's not a product of society, he's not acting out childhood abuse, he kills because he likes it. He's already killed five of his family members at a Thanksgiving dinner and then just sat down to watch the rest of a football game. So the question is, if he's in prison and he's about to face the death penalty and his partner is still walking away free, would he care if his partner dies? He may still have set the whole thing up. And that's sort of the conclusion Scully comes to. At the end, you could see her talking around of it, justifying other ways Boggs could have gotten this information, and basically convincing herself that, no, there's no supernatural involved. This is one of the standout episodes of the first season that really starts to pull things together. A lot of it comes from Gillian Anderson's performance. A lot of this power comes from Brad Dourif's performance. We've got the great Morgan along script, and we have David Nutter directing again. So everything just pulls together. As always, the Mark Snow score is done as an accent and not for melody. So Mark Snow's score tends to be perfect underlying factor in a lot of these episodes, and part of it is because he is doing it as a soundtrack and not as an album that can be played later. I don't respond the same way to his music if I'm just playing it as a soundtrack, as I do when I'm hearing under part of the episode. It is the perfect accompaniment, which I think is what a good soundtrack should be. All in all, this is definitely one of the stronger episodes of the first season. Next time, we're going to talk about Genderbender, which has, well, two significant firsts, and then kind of a minor first in terms of X-Files. But we'll get to that next time. Intro and outro music is by Lastwell, created under the Creative Commons license. All other content, copyright 2014, Bureau 42. Please feel free to send any comments and feedback to bureau42podcasts at gmail.com or leave us a review on iTunes.